Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And today, I'm really excited about today because we're speaking to one of my old professors, Professor Richard Gonzalez, who I think has taught half the lawyers in Neela, Illinois now. So just to give some brief background on Professor Gonzalez, uh, Rich joined the Chicago-Kent College of Law faculty in 1988. He received his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University. And then this part I'm pretty upset about because he got his law degree from Ohio State University College of Law. As a Michigan grad, we've had a lot of Michigan folks. So this is kind of an upsetting turn of events, Professor. Well, I'm an uh, Alabama fan, so roll tide. In any event, in addition to teaching, Professor Gonzalez works in private practice. He worked for the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago, which has since changed its name, and as an administrative law judge for the Illinois State Human Rights Commission. Rich has taught employment courses in employment discrimination, pretrial litigation, which I took at Kent, negotiations, and alternative dispute resolution, and advanced legal writing. He is also a frequent speaker and author on topics regarding employment discrimination and various forms of wrongful discharge. In 2013, Professor Gonzalez was inducted to the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers, the organization that recognizes the nation's top labor and employment attorneys. Rich, welcome. Oh, well, thanks for having me, like the guests always say to Aaron Burnett. Uh, thanks for having me, Aaron. There's one tidbit we actually forgot to add, which I learned about in our prep meeting. Your son is a comedian and rock star? No, I have two sons. One's a comedian, one's a rock star. I see. Okay, so we have to have them both on, but separately. And they have had a very tough year because it's been tough for comedians and rock stars. Yep. No, that's true. Bad Virtual time to be comedy. Yeah, bad time to be in a profession that requires people's uh, reactions for you to really know if you're doing well. Oh, yeah. Hopefully they'll have a very busy summer. We're getting there. <laughs> so, Rich, we're going to just dive right in. I'm a Kent grad. You were kind enough to be a really good mentor to me when I was your prof- when you were my professor. Excuse me. So, you know, Chicago Kent and by extension, you have taught a good chunk of our bar and the attorneys that we're lucky enough to call colleagues with Neela, Illinois. Do you have any concept or do you ever think about how many of us have you actually kind of prepared and sent on our way into this area? Well, I, I didn't look at it that way, but I've looked at like total number of students and it's staggering, but I've been there 33 years. So if we just take employment people, let's say there's 10 a year. So there's about 300 people who went into NILA at least for some period or went over to the dark side and are <laughs> representing the defense, but probably about 300 employment lawyers. It's really impressive. I, you know, it's funny because one of the things in our intro episode, if anybody ever listens to any of this stuff, people will hear was Amit and I kind of kicking around how poorly trained lawyers tend to be when they come out of law school, but that the one, if if minor exception seems to be Kent because of the unique setup at Kent and perhaps the really good instruction. What is it? Do you mind just sharing real quick? We're going to go off script for a moment. What is it about Kent that's unique that Kent has that a lot of other law schools don't that seems to prepare some of its students so well? Oh, it's the commitment, I think, to uh, labor and employment and these these institutes. And, and over the years, the firms find out about them. So they call up and they say, we don't even want to talk to somebody who isn't part of your certificate program because you know, why waste time with people who aren't serious about employment law? So, you know, we were named number one in one of those many, many surveys about a half a year ago in labor and employment. 
One thing that's cool about your course listing, at least, is you teach a lot of practical courses, like pretrial litigation, in my opinion, was one of the more valuable courses in law school. But ADR is really helpful. Negotiations is a super fun class. I didn't take it with you, but it's a fun class. Advanced legal writing, I think, is super important. Oh, yeah. I mean, we just they they have a commitment there. We don't do everything great at Kent. But in that one area, I think we've really, really have a commitment and it's paid off. Is there something now Kent's clinic is a little bit different than some of the rest in that it's a it's a for is it I remember when I was there I remember hearing it was the only or one of the only for profit sort of basically law firms that exist within the law school is that still the case. Yeah, I mean, it's really a private law firm inside the school, and I should probably watch what I say here, but <laughs> it's, it's common knowledge that IIT and many other universities are not in great financial shape these days, so we're really popular with the administration at IIT because we bring in money instead of take away money. So it's, you know, it, it's, yeah, we're unique. So how does that work? Is If you enter into an attorney-client relationship, are they entering that into as a school or? Um, yeah. You, okay. So they yeah, would, as a school. IIT would be representing them or whatever the company name is for that. Right, right. Yeah. All cases go through Chicago, Kent. So it's much like a law firm. And independently too, one thing I think Kent does a good job of is they have, is it an incubator program? They help attorneys who want to create their own law firms kind of get started and up and going. Oh yeah, we give them space and work with them on developing clients. How do you find clients? You know, they're doing a lot of things for the first time, a legal issue they've never had before. So yeah, that's a pretty cool program too. I remember from when I did, you know, when I was, when I was, a, I guess, a student in the pretrial litigation program, which I did not finish, I did not get my certificate, but Aww. not because it just, I got a job 2L year that just started to make it complicated, but, but, you know, it's a great program because it gave me the opportunity to sit in a bunch of depositions on a case you were working up that against the city of Chicago, which <laughs> and which, which was unpleasant, but you, you, you get some really good exposure. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely the kind of thing where at a, if you're a law clerk at a firm, you know, there's not a lot of incentive for them to pay you to basically sit and watch and observe, but you know, the program you guys have allows students to pretty much sit in on anything or get exposure to really anything any of their attorneys bring in, right? Oh, yeah. By the way, that was the last case I ever took against the city of Chicago. Life is too short. Although I admire the NILA attorneys who do take cases against the city of Chicago. But but yeah, you're right. I mean, we've had students with a 7-Eleven license. That's the thing that lets you go into court just like a lawyer after a year and a half of law school. So we've had students take deps. We've had them do witnesses at jury trials. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, one plug I'll make for Kent, even though I, I'm not a former Kent student, I teach at Loyola, like a legal writing class there, and I went to DePaul. But Kent hosted the city championships for the Urban Debate League here in Chicago for two years in a row. Facilities were nice. They were super welcoming to the kids. And it was kind of an, it was a cool experience, I think, for the kids to be in a law school and to be able to have their like final debate round there. Well, Loyola has aced us out again in the most (laughs) recent U.S. news rankings. So you are our competition. (laughs) I feel like the whole time I was at law school, Kent and Loyola every year would sort of jockey and switch roles. And I started to get the sense that nobody was actually really keeping track of what was putting them there. It was just sort of one of those coin flips. It's like, all right, it's Loyola's turn. They're ahead now this year. And now it's Kent's turn. I'll tell you, though, (laughs) this. Oh, I'll tell you, uh, law school administrations, they live and breathe this stuff. It's like the most important thing in the world to them. 
So Rich, to switch gears a little bit, you've been at this a long time. And so our goal with this podcast, we our hope is that we're going to attract some non-lawyers as well as attorneys, because we think there's a market for, for legal services and people seem to find what attorneys do at least sometimes very interesting. So one of the things we wanted to do just because of all the years you've got is help our non-attorneys listeners have a better understanding of employment law generally and just sort of navigating the workplace. So you mentioned you've been running this clinic or in the employment law field at Kent at least for over 30 years. You've been at the Illinois Human Rights Commission. You've, you've done a lot. What are some of the most misconceptions that you see or you've just over the years started to hear enough that the average person thinks about employment law, their job generally? What are some things people think is true that just isn't. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at the change over time. I mean, when I was in law school, and I won't mention the name of it because that seems to upset you, but my <laughs> law school, we didn't even have a course in employment law. It was like two days of the labor law course. So if you stop people on the street 35 years ago, 30 years ago, and said, what rights do you have in the workplace? I think most people would have said none. I mean, maybe, maybe trying to form a union, maybe, but no, your employer can do anything they want. Look at the sea change in 30 years. Now, if you stop people on the street, and we NILA lawyers, of course, we don't have to stop people on the street because they call us constantly uh, wanting to sue their employer, and they think everything is illegal. So what a change. What a change in the public perception of of. of employee rights. But yeah, I think the most common misconceptions, uh, I think, unfairness is illegal. Mean, nasty supervisors are illegal. People use the word harassment a lot. And, and of course, gender harassment, religious harassment. <clears throat> yeah, those are all those are all illegal. But general run-of-the-mill harassment, like I don't like you and I'm going to make your life miserable here so you'll quit, isn't illegal. And that, to me, is one of the hardest things for the public to accept. You guys know what I'm talking about. You oh, have to sure. argue. You have to argue with these people. And they're saying to you, what do you mean it's not against the law? Yeah, I, I think there's a misconception between basically anti-bullying and anti-wrongful discrimination. So let's just back up for a second, because I think the three of us have a good understanding of this, I would hope, <laughs> maybe more so than the two of us. But what's the simplest way then to explain what is illegal or wrongful termination? Well, I always say like wrongful discharge, they always call up and they say, you know, I want to bring a wrongful discharge case. And I got this from David Lee who's a NILA lawyer, of a way to explain it. And he says, you know, that's like wrongful discharge is like saying a car. You have to have a make of a car to bring the case. It's a Chevy or it's a Ford. So there is really, I always say to people, there really is no such thing as a wrongful discharge case. That's just an umbrella term for the exceptions to employment at will. The exceptions to the concept that an employer can fire you for any reason or no reason. So we're looking for the exceptions. And they might be the discrimination laws like Title VII or age discrimination. You know, over the years, we've seen more and more retaliatory discharge, implied contracts. So all these exceptions almost swallow up the rule of employment at will. But that's why people on the street would tell you, we can sue your employer for anything. 
Well, even the, de- the defense bar would always tell you that people sue their employer for everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm in. Oh, that's all right. So even retaliatory discharge, that I think gets confusing to some folks. They'll say, oh, I made a complaint that the owner hired their nephew and then I was fired. Is that that's retaliation, right? Well, right. You always have to explain that continuum of it depends upon the issue that you're complaining about. Right. If you're saying, oh, you're manufacturing baby carriages that catch on fire. Yeah, every state of the union is going to say that's a good retaliatory discharge case because it affects the public good, the health and welfare of the public. If you're saying, yeah, I don't like the way uh, you run your commercials, you know, or like your example that you're hiring your brother-in-law, no court in the country is going to say that's protected. So where you sit on that continuum seems to make all the difference. I'm chuckling a little bit at you saying you have to argue with people about it sometimes. Because when I was in your clinic, we had a guy call up probably three times. And I don't know how he ended up in front of me every single time, but he did. Because at least when I was doing this, gosh, almost 10 years ago now, one of the tasks you'd give us when we were in the clinic was like returning intake calls that had gone to the, you know, the admins. And this guy said he was fired because he was too nice to people, which I found to be a stretch anyway, but he said that that was discrimination. And I, you know, I was... It was, I didn't understand employment law quite as well as I do now and, and whatnot, but I knew enough to know at that point that that was not a Title VII violation we could help with. You know, and I'm, I'm not making fun of people for their perceptions. I'm just saying that the word is out that there's almost nothing an employer can do for you. There was a, a story in the Tribune a couple of years ago that I clipped and I give it to my clients sometimes. And the headline was, your, your boss is a jerk. Nothing much you can do about it. So, you know, my theory is what keeps employment lawyers in business is the worst atrocities are committed by low-level supervisors, people who are overreaching. They're making decisions they shouldn't make without going to the HR department. And that's where this stuff plays out, right? That's where the sex harassment is coming from. That's where the poor treatment is coming from. I, I feel like that's something we see a lot, right? Like you get some low-level manager, even at like a big, a, a high-end company that's, you know, a recognizable brand, and you put them in a store that has a hard time staffing or, or in a business that's got some trouble, and you basically give them expectations that they just can never hope to meet. That's how you get wage and hour violations where somebody's making people work off the clock or, you know, to keep the payroll budgets down. That's where you get pregnancy discrimination, right? Where like somebody calls in sick, you know, with or calls in for pregnancy related issues and they're scrambling to fill that role. So they fire him or something like it's, it's easy to see how that stuff happens like that. Oh my God. It's tough to be an HR person and to just be a regular old supervisor. Who's supposed to know all this stuff, the family medical leave act. Oh my God. Do, do low level supervisors mess that one up all the time. They intimidate people who try to use it. They don't understand how it works. They hate intermittent FMLA. And that, of course, gives you the right, if you have an appropriate medical condition, that you're not maybe taking off two or three weeks at a time, but it's sporadic. Uh, So you call in at 9 a.m. and say, you know, I can't be in today. I'm I'm having a flare-up, and I'm using one of my FMLA days. And these supervisors go ballistic. Not, not realizing that that's what it's there for. So I think it, it's stuff like that. One more good example. 
employers don't seem to realize that Illinois has a statute that says employees are allowed to complain about their pay. They're allowed to try to find out what other people make. They're allowed to say I'm underpaid and complain about it. And that comes as a stone cold shocker to most employers when they get sued for that. I, I can't, they, they wrote the memo. They said, we're letting you go because you keep walking around here complaining about how underpaid you are. I think this is also why you need a lot more employment trainings within the workplace of so folk. You know, obviously, then you can resolve a lot of these issues or minimize them. But also from an employer standpoint, it's good then because you're limiting your own exposure and potential liability. Because a lot of these can be technical violations that can have remedies and can pose problems, which I think leads me to at least another misconception I almost deal with with potential uh, clients or just other, you know, terminated employees, the remedies. You know, what can you get if you're a wrongfully terminated employee? Boy, every client has read the handful of enormous verdicts that they've seen in the media or online somewhere. And, and a lot of those verdicts, as you guys know, are kicked back to the statutory caps because under Title VII, only for the biggest companies, I think it's 500 or more employees, you That's can right. get up to, yeah, you can get up to a statutory cap. So if that jury comes back with a million dollars, the judge just knocks it back down to the statutory cap. Now, what we try to do, what employment lawyers try to do on the plaintiff's side is add other counts that have unlimited damages, like unlimited compensatory or punitive damages, like intentional infliction of distress or retaliatory discharge, right, that don't have those caps. But yeah, many of my clients are frustrated by, there just aren't enough damages in these cases, they say. Like age, age discrimination has nothing but lost wages. So the clients always want to claim emotional distress and we always have to explain to them, it, it just isn't available. Yeah, and the age cases in particular are so hard, right? Because our courts have done such a nice job of carving, of carving up causation on those cases. So if somebody gets fired for cost-related reasons, even though the older folks at the company may end up being the highest earners, you know, good luck trying to prove that claim. Although one thing I think that employers do that helps us a little bit on those is they lie. So instead of, instead of going into court and saying, look, this guy is making twice the money after all his years here. So we hired these two kids at cost savings. They don't use the health insurance system as much. The pension contributions are smaller. See, we're just saving money. Not many employers seem to have the guts to say that. Instead, they make something up like he was a terrible employee. And I'll take that back any day. I'll take the latter any day. <laughs> he's a terrible employee he worked there for 27 years <laughs> right like the guy who's never the you know the person who's never had a negative performance review in their entire career suddenly can't do their job to save their lives you know and it's like well that doesn't <laughs> doesn't really track well, i always wonder why don't why don't the defense bar get together and just tell all their clients stop lying about the reasons you're firing people, you're going to come out way ahead if you just stop lying. Come on, Rich, where's the fun in that? <laughs> so I guess to, to, to go to the other side of that original question, is there anything, so you know, you've talked about what makes 
what people struggle to grasp. You've talked about the sea change. Is there something specific, and it can be new or it can be something that's always been the case, that like a mistake that workers will make or just that people in general make that tends to make your life harder as an employment lawyer? Something that you wish you could kind of teach across the board, not just conceptually, but stop doing X. Oh, absolutely. Why do employees think that they can write scathing memos to HR, to their supervisors, they insult them personally. Why do they think that's a good idea? Because I always tell the clients, every one of those emails that you send, think of it as an exhibit at a trial someday. Think of it like everybody on the jury is reading that email you just wrote to your supervisor when you accused him of being a scumbag. Think about that for a minute. You have the opportunity to make your own exhibits. Why not try to make yourself the good person? And, and they're the ones who are, are difficult and oppressive. So I, I try to explain that one a lot. Oh, number two, employees seem to think that there's nothing wrong with warring with coworkers. And my, again, I got this one from David Lee. The, 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 the line is, co-workers can kill you. Co-workers can kill you. If you get a co-worker mad at you and they start going to HR saying, oh, that guy over there is a jerk. I, I, I don't like him. I wonder about, is he, is he getting a little bit crazy? I mean, we're worried about him. Oh, that is devastating. Because the employers can say, hey, co-employees are complaining about you. We don't know who's right and who's wrong, but you touched a chord with them and they're not happy with you. I feel like in the hostile work environment harassment cases, you see that a lot. One of the common, I mean, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, right? But one of the common ones I always hear about our clients is that they're the bully. Like the real bully here is your client, the victim. And, you know, I mean, it's a hostile environment. Nobody's getting along. Sometimes your client is contributing a little bit. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. And and interesting how they become, this sounds worse than I intended to sound, but but they often become demonstrative exhibits of whatever the reason is they were fired. Another NILA lawyer, Steve Platt, told me that one. He says, so Steve says, if they fired you for being um, late all the time, you will show up for your appointments with the lawyer late. You'll show up in court late. So, you know. If they criticize you for never getting to the point of rambling and rambling, that's what you're going to do. And so they sort of play out whatever the reason is that the employer was unhappy with them. The one caveat I'll add to the email problem, though, is it's not just limited to employees in the workplace. I feel a lot of attorneys also violate that rule, probably. Oh, you bet. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, really. I mean, I've done it. We've all done it. But. You know, those times you just wish, I, I wish I had never hit send. <laughs> My advice to everyone really across the board is draft it. Don't include a, a two in the, in the email and then delete it like two days later. Just get it out there. Get it out of your system. Also, never. It makes you, yeah, makes you feel better. You've, throw, you've smashed a plate against the wall. You feel better now. You can move on. Yep. And then now write an email that actually is helpful for you and never post anything on Facebook. <laughs> right, 
great. You go to some of these disciplinary seminars and you sometimes wonder what the attorneys are thinking before they put some of this stuff out there. It's like, you guys realize the internet's forever, right? Like it's not going to go away just because you hit delete or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's these are challenging times for the lawyers too. But but you're right. I I'm I'm always amazed at how little we think this through. If it's oh I'm going to post something on Facebook because I feel like saying that right this minute. A, a war story <laughs> I use with clients at the end of a matter when they're signing a settlement agreement is there was this age discrimination case. I think it was in Florida. I think it was a principal who signed onto an agreement. There was a confidentiality clause. He had told his daughter. I don't know if she posted about it on Facebook or she did something. So it got all across the school. So then the company rescinded the settlement amount because he had breached the confidentiality provision. So I use that story oh, yeah. all the time when I'm talking to clients. Oh, yeah. I have a case right now where I've never had this before. Usually our clients want the non-disparagement provision. The company won't say anything bad about them. My client does not want it. He, the company wants it. My client wants to be able to trash them on social media for the next five years. So that's holding up a settlement in that case because the defense lawyer says, you realize sometimes, especially smaller companies, that's what they're paying for, right? Amazon doesn't care if you trash them, but these small companies do. So I, that, so clients always surprise me with what they really want, what motivates them. I had a guy one time who told me that the non-disclosure, non-disparagement provisions were violating his free speech. So we had to have a discussion of what constitutes <laughs> protected amendment speech. And I said, oh, dude, yeah. dude, they're not letting you keep the bonus if you keep trashing them. So you're going to have to you're going to have to make a decision whether the money or, you know, your ability to disparage these guys is going to matter more to you. Oh, but we're right. We're all motivated by strange stuff and, and clients just like everybody else are motivated by the stuff that moves them. And, and they bring that to the table in these cases. You know, I'll add another interesting current client story. It's amazing to me what the public thinks about the way this legal system works. You know, have you ever had this experience? By the way, have you ever had the experience when before a client talks to you, they say, is this confidential? Can, All the time. Can I, can I be certain that you don't have any ties to Amazon who I want to sue? So they get very paranoid about that. I've but had I have a situation cur- where they A, want it to be confidential, but B, don't want to say who the employer is. And right. it's like, well, I can't do a conflict check and I can't answer the question right. you want me to answer. Right. They don't, sometimes they don't want to tell you who the employer is because they're, they're scared that you might be in cahoots with them. But but I have a client right now, and it just shows you how the public thinks about the legal system. A judge, it was Judge Holderman, who's retired. He made a decision, a number, a written decision a number of years ago that is bad for our case. And the client says, why don't we contact Judge Holderman and talk him out of that decision and get him to reverse it? And, and where do you begin? I think one thing folks struggle with a lot too is the time frame, because you got to make like a you got to file a charge within a very quick amount of time. But the legal system itself is super slow. You know, if you get that million dollar verdict, that's probably going to take. I mean, now post COVID, it's probably going to take six, seven, eight years from today. But then on top of that, then there's going to be an appeal because the bigger the number, the more likely there is to be an appeal. It's going to go probably go back to the trial court, which means it's 
going to be a new trial. Maybe this gets appealed again. So you're sometimes looking at a situation that's a decade in the making. Yeah, I think often if you run through the time frame with clients, uh, I've found that they're more willing to settle because they didn't know that. They didn't know what you just said. And if you, if you just lay that, especially during the pandemic. I mean, I have a case in federal court right now where we've had a fully briefed motion for coming up on two years. So, I mean. I have one of those right now, too. <laughs> just, I, I guess, pivoting back a little bit, you know, one of the other ones I, just, just to throw my own part in, I, I hate when clients will tell me they've secretly recorded something because that that one is sort of the worst thing that I can find out about a case midway through because Illinois is a two-party consent state, so we're not lucky enough to have that be legal here. So you get a client who might have a decent case come in and tell you got all this evidence and yeah, all the evidence was obtained illegally. And now you got to talk to them about how they've just possibly committed a felony and how <laughs> that's not going to fly in court either. And I'm never sure what to tell them. I usually say, Stop talking about that. Never bring that subject up again. And we can't use it. But I wonder if you should go further, you know, than, than just that. So we, the way my old firm and I would deal with that, because it would come up from time to time, was we spent a lot of hours talking about this. And it got put out on the listserv a bunch of times, which meant then everybody started assuming I knew how to answer that question because I'd asked it. Not, not bothering to check to see if anybody had actually answered the question. But the, the best practice I've had posed to me is you put them, first of all, you put them in touch with a criminal lawyer and you do want to put this in writing so that everybody knows they've been told. If it's something that they ask, the other side asks about in discovery, we obviously have a duty of candor to the tribunal and we can't instruct them to destroy evidence or not tell the truth about it. So we may have to disclose it, you know, depending on whether one of the exceptions to the law applies or not, you might ask them to plead the Fifth Amendment in their deposition if they're asked about it or tell the truth and, you know, let the other side explain to the jury they want to, you know, harangue them about breaking the law. Meanwhile, they recorded this person because that same supervisor sexually harassed him for the last six months, you know, and basically yeah. putting on paper that they've been warned about it, making sure they have a criminal lawyer and instructing them to not talk to anybody if the police ever contact them. Because I think the good news from the prosecutor folks that we have in our bar and elsewhere is that, you know, at least in Chicago, Chicago Police Department is not super likely to prosecute that issue. <laughs> you know, they, they don't really want their crime right. stats going up based on that. But nevertheless, you know, they have to be advised that there are risks to that coming out. And the other thing was I've had some attorneys say that certain federal judges just don't recognize the Illinois Eavesdropping Act. They think it's unconstitutional. So it's just not an issue they're going to really entertain at any level in front of them. But that's not across the board and certainly nothing I would hang my hat on, you know. Yeah, but it's just so tempting. I mean, it's so easy for any of us to pull out our phone and start recording something. Remember, you couldn't take a camera into a courtroom. Well, now everybody is walking around with a camera. And, I mean, uh, you're walking around with a recording device, a camera, a, basically a small handheld computer. I mean, it's, you know. Well, for example, like we're on Zoom right now. It'd be very, obviously we're recording this, but it'd be very easy for one of us to have an iPhone out and record this conversation without anyone's consent and no one can see the phone. So, I mean, it's not that hard. I guess this brings me to one of my, I guess, to reverse it a little bit, favorite things to do working with clients is kind of like exit strategies and kind of piercing this through. And I feel if when they bring someone on earlier, there's a lot of things like this you can game plan out of, hey, make sure you don't record something. Here's how to write the email. Here's how you can protect yourself. Here's how the time frame looks so we can make sure we've set you up properly, et cetera. 
So that way we can turn something that otherwise could be a decade to maybe it's a, a much faster timeline. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the best things we can probably do is give that kind of advice to people. And, you know, like you say, sometimes they cut, you know, you hate it when they contact you after many bad things have already happened and the suit is already filed. The other side has already moved for summary judgment. You know, so we love it when it's from the get go. I got fired yesterday. Obviously, those are the cases that where you have some control, you can give some intelligent, good advice to the client. Yes. I mean, some of my favorite cases to work on are really the cases where someone's in a bad situation, they want to get out and they haven't been separated yet, or they think the writing's on the wall. And so then there's a lot you can do pre-termination or pre-separation to really put them in a good spot. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised how often the company, if you write to the company and you say, you know, we're getting the impression that he or she is no longer a valued employee. We hope we're wrong about that. But if that's your perception, do you want to work out a nice severance package? And I'll bet you 90% of the time they say, yep. Well, especially pre-COVID because the problem was no one's remote. And so now you have a situation where you have an employee who's hiring an attorney, alleged some claims. It just creates a difficult situation. You know, now it's a little different because you can everyone's working from home. So maybe it's a little bit more easier to navigate, but pre COVID that's, that's a tough spot to be in. Oh yeah. Yeah. And of course, once they get a letter like that, they realize, Oh, this person has already gone to see an employment lawyer. Bad things are coming. <laughs> Let's cut our losses and work something out now. It's funny you mentioned that rich. Cause I think when you you've mentioned David Lee a couple of times and you gave a really nice speech for him a couple of years ago at the national conference when it was in Chicago, sort of justifiably lionizing him for all the good work he did to basically help build our bar and our organization and whatnot. You know, you, you, you kind of described this demand letter that was kind of this very gentle, Hey, here's our view of what's happening here. And I, I took that because one of my favorite lines when I don't think the facts are always on my side, but I figure if I can, massage it right and if the other side and I can get along and recognize some uncontroverted issues that both sides have you know it's this opening line of I get the sense that this person is not terribly popular here over here anymore and <laughs> everybody might benefit from 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 getting them out of your hair can we work on that together oh yeah yeah and boy, I'm sure you guys know what I mean it's yeah, David Lee always said uh, and, and don't your clients sometimes get upset with you that the demand letter isn't angry enough. You're not, you're not bashing them. And David Lee always said, if you want somebody to give you a lot of money, you might worry them. Don't insult them, worry them about where this case could go. So one of the best tips I received early in my career, and I really harp on this actually in my legal writing class, is the value sometimes of passive voice. Because you know, a lot of times you want to have action verbs, you want to be direct, you want to explain the situation. But in a demand letter, sometimes you actually want to be passive because depending on who's reading it, who you're talking about, you don't want to be so angry and harping on necessarily the bad actor. And so there is an art form to it. You want to give them the out, right? So that they're not necessarily, if they're the ones who are the middle management folks who you need on your side, but maybe somewhat responsible, you may not want to throw them directly under the bus as they're going to have no choice but to deny whatever you're throwing at them. Oh, yeah. And look, you know, I I'm not telling you how this case is going to come out. I'm saying to you that we have very different testimony here. 
and, and a jury is going to decide who to believe, that's all I'm saying. If, if you had one or two tips, Rich, for somebody who's sees the writing on the wall, and sometimes people don't, sometimes people think they can stick it out and convince the other side that it's going to work. And, you know, those are usually the people I see again a few weeks later after I feel like, you know, case was tenuous up front. Now you're gone already. I don't really have much leverage. But, you know, for the folks who do see the writing on the wall and see that they're heading towards the exits, fairly or not, is there anything you might recommend for them or just, and I realize that's a broad question, but just generally stuff that you've kind of learned over the years with that? Well, problem number one is it's hard to get the client to accept that. They often think they're going to turn that boat around, you know, if they just make their point strongly enough. So, you know, I, I try to say, be nice. You know, everything you write, everything you say, I, 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 I get the sense I'm disappointing you guys. And I, I'm working so hard and I, I don't understand what went wrong. Because two years ago, you thought I was doing great. And, and now I'm just all confused about this. And go see an employment lawyer, you know, who will, who will give you their best opinion as to whether you're just having a couple of rocky patches or whether you are on the way out, because you, the three of us know, and most of our listeners know, when that company wants to get rid of you, there is a predictable set of things that are going to happen. And when we see them, the performance review plan, the performance review plan where they never meet with you, they never want to talk about any of this. They just want the time to run out on the plan. If you're seeing that, we can give them some decent advice. Well, the third thing I often add to, which isn't necessarily legal advice, but just more pragmatic advice, figure out a new landing spot. Like, what is your plan B going to be? Because the last thing you want to do, even if you have a great liability claim, it might take a while to be able to get that jury uh, verdict or that amount of money to you. So have a bridge already in place. Oh, and talk about stress with clients. I mean, there's enough studies out there about how bad that is for you to walk into a workplace every day where you're not valued, you're not wanted. This is hurting you. Get somewhere, get somewhere more comfortable for you because even if we can bang all this stuff out, it's not good for you to keep working. And that's something that's harder to compensate. It's one thing to be able to figure out what the lost wages are and calculate that out. But the emotional turmoil of being in a bad situation, that, I, you know, it's hard to put a number to that. Oh, I consider myself one of the luckiest people on earth. You guys probably do too, because all we hear is bad stuff <clears throat> from employees about their workplaces. And so like every day I'm like, oh man, I've got it pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's partially why I work where I work, because I, I know I like my coworkers and I can kind of shape the culture. I often feel, and I think this is kind of ringing true in this, in this episode, that I'm almost a therapist sometimes for people who are going through very tough situations. And they never, they never tell you that in law school, do they? That you're going to have to be a therapist and a listener. You, you might have hinted at it at the pretrial litigation course with that old case that you've got under pseudonyms, the Wendy Marino case that you had of us do, the hostile work environment from back in the day. There was a little oh, bit yeah. of you'd have as Rich would have other employment lawyers or actors that his, were friends of one of his kids come in and kind of play the roles in this case that he'd changed all the names and you know information for that he would have us kind of work up. 
I don't know, it was fun. There was a little bit of that kind of figuring out like, what do you say, you know, putting us on the spot in front of everybody, what kind of questions you asking at intake and all that. Yeah, and the actors would come in and be difficult, just like real clients are. I think I asked one of your attorney friends who'd come in about it one time and he was like, oh, I came in and did that because he was like screaming and yelling at the end of the deposition and, and all that to kind of put on a show for us. You know, and mind <laughs> you, he's very friendly and he was kind of playing a character. I think that was Chicago comedian Marty DeRosa. And he's very good, by the way. Marty DeRosa. I will plug him. Good comic. There you go. Amit, do you want to ask your favorite question? I will ask my favorite question. So what we've been doing, especially right now in the pandemic, where things are getting better, but maybe not all the way there. We want to add some positivity to these podcasts. So we do a shout out of the week at the end of each episode. This can be a book you're reading, a show, a person, a charity, anything. Anything positive you want to kind of shout out at the end of this i saw a movie about two weeks ago that a friend recommended it's out on netflix oh the name is i like to help people i think is the name of the movie and it's interesting for lawyers because it's about taking advantage of you know guardianships and and older people and getting control of their finances but the the main character reaches out to the wrong person and, and it gets in a lot of trouble by trying to uh, take over the finances of the wrong old person. I think it's I like to help people. Rich, if people want to find you, how can they do that? Oh, just go to the Kent Law website, kentlaw.edu. And I, you know, click on me, a picture of me from about 25 years ago when I looked a lot younger pops up. I don't look like that anymore, but I'm not changing the picture. So that that's the easiest way is to go to our website at kentlaw.edu. Very good. Well, Rich, thank you so much for coming on. It was a real treat to get to hear your war stories and uh, get to catch up with you a little bit as, <laughs> as a podcast. So that was good. That was good for us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you, Professor. Thanks, Rich. Thank you. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.